0: I'm a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you no more deaths in the house. Hi, welcome to episode one of Ghouls Only Cast. I'm your host, Meg, and has. Anyone gone back and rewatched the Gumby movie from when they were kids and noticed that tons of stuff is gone? I noticed that not too long ago, and that's driving me fucking crazy. That has nothing to do with the episode, I just kind of wanted to put it out there, because it's really bothering me. So, episode one is about burial ground. There's gonna be a little bit of nerdy stuff in a few places because of historical locations. Please bear with me, I'm just like that, I'm sorry. (laughs) So, Burial Ground. It was originally titled the Knights of Terror. I mean, it was in Italian, but I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I don't want to have anyone mad at me. So the movie was also called Zombie Horror, The Zombie Dead, interesting name, and Zombie 3. So it was called Zombie 3 because when George Romero's Dawn of the Dead came out in 1978, it was marketed under the simple and sweet title Zombie in Italy. So in 1979, Italian filmmaking legend Lucio Fulci directed a film that was supposed to be an unofficial sequel and definitely not a cash-in at all to Dawn of the Dead, and it thus received the title Zombie 2. But it's known simply as Zombie over here. Probably some other places too, I'm not so sure. But, a little aside for Zombie 2 that I wanted to add because I just thought it was really interesting. So, most people know Zombie 2 at a glance for being the movie that has a zombie doing underwater smackdown on a drugged-up tiger shark. I just wanted to add this because I thought it was really cool. So, the man in the zombie makeup that's fighting the shark, so his name was Ramon Bravo. He was an accomplished underwater photographer and a former Olympian. He actually contributed something significant to oceanography because he's the guy who discovered how sharks sleep. So before he swam down in certain caves, studied the sharks, and took pictures, it was commonly thought that sharks had to constantly swim or they'd die. I don't know. I just thought that was really cool. So that guy added that and then he also added like the coolest scene from that movie. So, Zombie 2 begat several pseudo-sequels, and I say that because they literally have nothing in common except for some degree of zombie action in them. So, each film also had several titles. I mean, hell, even Zombie 2 had three other titles. As far as I can tell, there were a veritable assload of other films that had the title of Zombie 3 at one point or another. So, that includes Fulci's Zombie 3 that he made, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, The Hanging Woman, Let's See... (laughs) Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. I love that one. I don't know. Dr. Butcher MD, also known as Zombie Holocaust. Nightmare City. Uh, North Korea's kaiju film Polgasari was known as Zombie 34 in Pakistan. I just wanted to add that in there. And finally, The Knights of Terror, aka Burial Ground. So, the movie was made in 1981 by Italian director Andrea Bianchi, who made such films as Strip Nude for Your Killer, Cry of a Prostitute, and Exciting Love Girls. Need I say more? The guy knew what he liked, and uh, it seems that it wasn't consensual, which is a well-known trope of giallo films and just films in general in that time, not the biggest champions of women, or for men being decent human beings. The film was written by Piero Regnoli, who seemed to have written screenplays for almost every well-worn genre in, like, film history, like westerns, horrors, and a whole lot of erotic stuff. Like, apparently he wrote a movie called Caligula's Hot Nights. (laughs) Send that thirsty text to your sister and your favorite horse, it's gonna be a long one. So there's a lot of rich ancient Roman history in this film, but it's just used as a functional backdrop, and it has nothing to do with the story, which is admittedly really fucking wafer thin. Like, there's not a whole lot that goes on in the movie. I mean, people go to this castle, zombies show up. That's really, really it. So, as far as the stuff that's in the movie... You know, the historical stuff, it's conflicting for someone who really digs Roman history, like me, but also really, really loves Sleazy Grindhouse, because, I mean, this is an over-sex zombie movie and it's juxtaposed against notable architecture dating back centuries. Like, yeah, that's actually kind of fucking awesome, but also it feels like it's a disrespect for the surroundings. Like, I feel like it could be kind of compared to how the perfect view of the pyramids and the Sphinx in Giza is actually from the window of a pizza hut. That's actually true. (laughs) So, Burial Ground was filmed for four weeks on location in Frascati which is located just 12 miles outside of Rome. It's like a suburb of Rome, and it's always been a suburb of Rome, even way, way, way back, 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 way, way far. It was actually considered, like, a cool place to live because it's like you didn't have to deal with the hustle and bustle of Rome. Like, you still have, like, a nice yard, but there was still plenty of stuff to do. That's where a lot of patricians lived. It was, you know, it was a suburb. So, Frascati actually sits on a place called the Alban Hills, which are the remains of a dormant c- volcano complex. And the ancient Romans actually believed that the Alban Hills uh, was where Jupiter's sanctuary was. And so, in 1981, that's where Andrea Bianchi thought zombies lived. The film is not considered to be a landmark in horror films or even a notable entry in the zombie subgenre, but it has very specific elements that make it a very memorable watch, and it's why loser weirdos like me keep coming back to it. So let's just get down into the plot at this point. I'm gonna give a complete plot summary of this whole movie, I'm gonna go blow for blow. There's gonna be spoilers, but I mean... The things that you might consider to be a spoiler are the things that, if people were to just tell you about it, they, they would be the things that make you say, oh, I want to see this movie. So, there's spoilers, but at the same time, there's no spoilers. Because, like I said, there's almost no plot in this movie. So, let's get into it. So, the film opens on an unnamed professor who looks strikingly like Alan Moore in a crypt. Uh, he's in a cave, an excavation site, he's somewhere, we can't quite tell where he is. But he's chiseling a perfect rectangle off of a wall. Quick cut to the professor staring at this artifact that he just discovered in his office. It has really childlike looking symbols of a tree, and a frowny face, and an upside down capital A on it. So far, I gotta say, it's very very Twin Peaks. Needs more corn though. He just says, I'm the only one who knows the secret. It must be true. It's incredible. And then he just goes back to the site that he was literally just at. I mean, I guess he absolutely needed to go and sit at his desk to look at it. There's no any like indication whatsoever that time has passed, like a significant amount of time. He's wearing the same exact outfit. So he got it, he took it all the way back to his office, and then he walked all the way back. And also the soundtrack here is just all bloops and bleeps. It's this perfect cheapo synth music that I just adore. Some of it sounds extremely similar to like really early Black Moth Super Rainbow demos crossed with production company logos at the beginning of old VHS tapes. It's It's lovely. I really enjoy it. So he walks back to the site where there's another piece of history. I'm sorry, please bear with me. As far as I could tell, because there's a pretty serious day-for-night filter over it, this site is actually the Theatre of Tusculum. So this theatre was built in the first century BC, the later half of it. It had orchestral pits, infrastructure for acoustics, it could seat 1,500 people. It had seats for rich people, like way higher-up seats. Like, it was was very, you know, modern, like you would think of today. And because he lived nearby, it's incredibly possible that Cicero actually attended this theatre. I guess being American, it's so hard to imagine people just flippantly using something from, you know, the first century BC in their shitty zombie movie. I mean, they put a whole mini-pantheon around Plymouth Rock here, and it's just a lame little stone whose historical significance is, like, actually frankly debatable. I'm getting a little off-topic. So after the uh, professor gets back to the site, he goes right back to the wall where he first chiseled that chunk off. And then he just starts smacking the shit out of it with a hammer, and then immediately some sarcophagus just starts shifting open, and then there's a fucking zombie. There's no real explanation, no reasoning behind the importance of that wall, there's just zombie. The the professor starts screaming, I'm your friend! But the zombie doesn't seem to recall their relationship and just lunges at him while more zombies pop up out of nowhere. And they do what zombies do to people, including apparent long-lost pals. And that's the, like, opening little bit of the movie. You know, we are less than five minutes in and we already have zombies, which is, you know not that common for a lot of uh, zombie films and so and then we got opening titles oh god is jazzy as fuck the scents have died with the professor it's a bright, beautiful day and several people are out taking a drive so if you've ever seen birdemic shock and terror you'll remember the first several minutes are this crooked shot of the road from the passenger side of a moving car and a good portion of the dashboard I think Bird Dimick actually stole that from Burial Ground because we get a riveting few minutes of that with the same shot from three different cars. <laughs> so the cars pull up to a gate and we get our first glimpse of some characters. We have local news reporter looking man complete with elbow patches, stereotypically attractive older woman named Evelyn, and holy shit, who is that in the back seat? Is it a man? Is it a child? Is that Deep Roy and Pee-wee Herman's baby? Dario Argento put through the wrong wash cycle? My darling listener, that is Peter Bark, the main draw and easily most memorable aspect of this fucking movie. So, he was 25 when the film was made, but the age his mother treats him is more like a 5 to 10 year old. And, I mean, I remember being shocked as a kid when I found out that Gary Coleman wasn't a little kid like me when I first saw Different Strokes. There is no shock here. Peter Park is just a very short yet lanky man. It almost makes you think that there's going to be some, like, sleepaway camp-esque twist at the end where she just found this little old man on the street and decided you're going to be my son. But no, they play him off like a total child. And apparently everyone got along with Peter Bark really, really well. And they loved um, talking to him and stuff. He was apparently really funny. He had a great time doing the film. And uh, so he was found by the casting director while he was just walking down the street one day and the rest is history. There is or was a strict law in Italy that kept children from acting in movies that were violent or were, well... We'll get into that later, but yeah, Peter Bark is amazing. So also as is stereotypical of some foreign films, particularly Italian films in this time period, there's the liberal use of ADR. And this included, aside from the ability to cut some corners while filming, the opportunity for actors of several different nationalities to act in the same films. Actors would speak in their native language, or what language they could with a co-star, and then the film would just be dubbed over in several different languages for multiple markets. This technique is blatantly noticeable in Burial Ground as soon as the actors start speaking. Professor Alan Moore doesn't count because of his beard. There's a throwaway line here about how George, the Mr. Local News-looking guy, never had a phone installed in the villa because it's supposed to be a place to relax, and I guess emergencies just don't matter. Assholes probably should have thought of a potential zombie outbreak. Most guys do that when they make decisions now. So the three cars drive up to this castle, and they're met by staff who help them with their belongings, and we get some ADR exposition. A local newsman looking George. I'll just call him George from now on, but he really does look like that. So his family has owned the villa for generations, and apparently he has just this live-in professor. Some places have gardeners. This one has a professor. So, George has been away from this place for about six months and is asking where the resident professor is. The butler says that they don't really know, and they don't see him much anyway because of the nature of his research. Very fucking convenient. Okay, one last bit of history. I promise this is the last one. I promise. So, you don't see much immediately, but this castle in this movie uh, is actually the Villa Parisi which was built in 1603 by the governor of Rome at the time. It was actually lived in by Napoleon Bonaparte's sister, Paulina, with her husband in the early 1800s because she wanted to be closer to her brother, Luciano, who was leading a nearby archaeological excavation in Tusculum, just like the professor in this movie. Again, the pyramids and the pizza hut. So this um, villa sat empty for almost 100 years, making it fairly affordable to shoot movies in. So they have a website now where they boast a list of movies that were shot there and um Burial Ground didn't make the list. Can't imagine why. There are a total of seven main characters in this movie, which I'm not sure I could tell you all of their names off the top of my head. So there's George, Evelyn, Janet, um the yeah, I'm not sure. I mean except for Michael, Peter Bark's character. So there's three women, three men, Peter Bark. Can you guess what comes next? Did you guess a lot of sex? Congratulations, you won. So Mr. Local News Guy, George, I'm I'm gonna just call him George. So he knocks on Evelyn's door where she's putting on a dressing robe and she quickly goes to check in on Michael who is sleeping, very unnaturally looking uh, with his covers tied up to his chins. They got little flowers on them. Blankets and the pillow all blend in to make it look like he's just this disembodied head and but she still gives him one of those little like aw, like mom looks you know the ones and She slowly closes this door and it's the creakiest fucking door you would ever hear in like any haunted house sound effect Tape or anything like that There's this beautiful zoom in of Michael's eyes just snapping open with this little bubble of synth music over it and It's like, you realize at this point, like, this is a zombie movie, but Michael is portrayed as being, like, scarier than the zombies. Or, like, he is, it's like, you have zombies as the main course, but Michael's the appetizer? I don't really know how else to describe it. So, Michael's eyes snap open, and that immediately cuts to an ass in see-through panties. But it's not even the attractive woman from before, it's a different attractive woman with a different man. So I remember the woman's name is Leslie, and the guy has a pencil mustache. So we got Leslie and we got pencil mustache. So she's wiggling around in a corset, which he just lovingly says, you look just like a little whore. And then he guides her onto the bed right in between his ashtray and his typewriter. I feel like this is how a lot of writers banged at that time, right between a lit cigarette and a 30 pound IBM typewriter. We see a creepy shadow lurking up the hallway with some synth music kind of burping along spookily under this depressing but sexy piano music, while it cuts back to Leslie and Mustache going at it, and then it cuts to really frantic sex, but no, this time it's Michael's mom and George. I mean, was there an itinerary on this? Like, 5 o'clock, get to villa, 5 everyone fuck each other? It's ridiculous. So then the door slams open. Then slowly, like a zombie, Michael walks up to the doorway from the opposite side of the way the door opened. Which is physically impossible. And Michael's telekinetic powers aren't really touched on again in this movie. What is going to be touched on a lot, though, is the weird relationship between him and his mother, or mama, as he constantly calls her. Instead of staying in bed underneath the covers, she gets up naked and goes across the room and picks up her robe that she doesn't even cover herself with. She just picks it up and stands there with her, with, you know, everything out and just tells him to go back to his room. And then he just gapes at her boobs for a few seconds and then leaves. That's that. Then we get to the last couple, Janet and boring photographer guy. I can't, I think his name's Mark. I can't really remember, but Janet is on the verge of a panic attack saying they need to leave and that she's nervous. Not really. I mean, she's right, but they don't really say like why she feels that way because this is the first time we've ever seen her, but he just pulls like the old Jack Burton, like relax, baby, I'm here. And then they start making out. So this... Sexual Parade is our intro to the characters, if you can call it an intro. There was footage that formerly, like, 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 formally introduced the characters as they drove up to the villa, but it was cut so we could get that sweet, birdemic POV segment. I mean, it's a shame because it makes, this seem less, makes them seem less like humans and more like, I don't know, Italians in a 70s zombie movie. <laughs> Next, we see more zombies clambering up and out of their resting places, and let's get this out of the way, the zombies don't look great. They all look like they're wearing artist smocks or just like drab maternity dresses. I mean, most of them have a paper mache skull mask that has huge protruding teeth, like very comically large cartoon teeth. Their noses poke through the holes and they're just simply painted black. Some zombies just look like they've had flower thrown on their faces, like chunky streets of white fabric paint in their hair. It's kind of endearing because all the masks are different and were all clearly handmade. The only redeeming thing about their look is the occasional zombie actor who was willing to have their face coated in live maggots or worms for a scene. I mean, it's cool, but at the same time, you know, it had already been done before in Fulci's zombie and possibly a few others. And I say endearing, but apparently the head makeup artist and designer later went on to Moonlight as a literal murderer? Yeah, he apparently stabbed a random man to death in the street. I couldn't translate the whole article, it was a little difficult, but... From what I could tell, he said that he was just very sick and didn't know why he did it. He didn't even know the man, but it was like he was sleepwalking. The Curse of Burial Ground, I guess. So It's finally the next morning. Michael is whining at the breakfast table about being bored, and George finally tells us that the professor is studying magical practices of the ancient Etruscans, particularly regarding preservation of the dead. Janet starts to freak out again, but boring photographer man essentially just tells her to shut up, bucks the Jalotren, he doesn't smack her. All the couples go their separate ways, and I mean, to be honest, I don't even know why they came here together as a group. It says, like, the professor has something to tell us. But there's no, like, rhyme or reason why they are all connected to each other or anything. Like, nothing. We get nothing. But they all go their separate ways. George cockboxed Michael to take his mom to see artifacts that were found on his property. And honestly, the murderous rage... And Peter barks eyes in this part, like, it holds the vision of this incestuous revenge film that we desperately want, but we're never going to get. You know, it's kind of sad. So while the couples head out, zombies are still on the move. I, I don't really even know like how far away they are, like how much distance they have to walk, but they' you know they're doing quite a bit of walking. They have been this whole time. It's impossible to tell how many of them there are. I mean it could be five, it could be fifty. I don't know. All we know is that the two couples are already screwing in the gardens. The staff are freaking out because light bulbs have just begun exploding for whatever reason. Michael, Mama, and George are in what I assume is a basement surrounded by ancient artifacts while Mama is learning how to fire a gun at the wall. I don't know. I know that when I want to learn how to shoot a gun, I would like to be surrounded by things that are potentially worth millions of dollars. That would be a good time for me. So, all these banging noises start turning George on. And he starts kissing and rubbing Evelyn's boobs, to which Michael yells, MAMA! And yanks her away. I say yell because it's really hard to put a word to something that could only be described as, you know, said softly but also shrieked. Uh, he, he glares at George so passionately, kisses his mom's hand. Like the Oedipus complex is live and it is here. I mean, no one really likes seeing their mother being an affectionate with a new man, but that's usually not out of seething jealousy, like the one-sided sexual tension is palpable, and George seems to pick up on it. So Michael gets his way, though, because his mom just dotes on him and crams his face against her boobs as she strokes his hair. Michael suffocates. The movie's over. The end. (sighs) Nah, there's a nice shot of a zombie rising out of the ground to shoot. Never mind that they only put makeup on the tops of his hands and his arms, and most of the shot is facing upwards from the ground. That lively pink flesh is just mold, honey. Don't even think about it. The zombie takes its sweet ass time getting up, making the harrowing music that's been grating over it the whole time seem like a gross overstatement. The zombie tries to turn Janet and photographer's situation into a three-way by grabbing his ankle, but no dice, they're just terrified. In a shot that looks so much like an early Peter Jackson movie that it's not even funny. Like another zombie like lunges out of nowhere and grabs Janet by the hair and then she and the photographer just run off because the zombies are comically slow. Like, you've seen slow zombies. These ones are like a whole new level of slow. And as far as I can see it at this point, the movie has officially started. Zombies have now started positively pouring into these gardens from all different directions into, funnily enough, what seems like a hedge maze. Like, okay, problem solved, these fucks are lost, let's just go home. But anyway, at this point, George in the basement, I guess, is trying to convince Evelyn that they should steal some of the artifacts to decorate their house with. When it shows Michael huffing a chunk of burlap. And then in, like, one of the film's most memorable quotes, he runs up to his mom and he's like, Mama, this cloth smells of death. And Michael must have a clairvoyant nose because zombies soon descend into the basement and lo and behold, shooting them does nothing. Um, George keeps saying, What are you doing here? Get back or I'll shoot. And then shoots them in the stomach. So that makes, like, green paint packets, like, explode on their tunics. And, um... He just doesn't do anything else. Mama and Michael essentially like shaggy and scooby it out of there and George gets turned into a human buffet. It isn't like the choke on him scene in Day of the Dead. It's just a quick cut to a sack and a sweater that's filled with meat and red paint. The zombies just kind of pick up the pieces and jiggle them around and then put them back in. I mean, they must just like how it feels ASMR gone too far. Pretty standard, except that wonderful synth sound is back, elevating this from boring to a happy little piece of schlock. Oh, and now Mustache and Leslie can't keep making out in the garden because the zombies finally made their way over. And Janet just got her foot caught in a bear trap while running away. Are bears a huge problem in gated villas of western Italy? I don't know. If anyone knows, let me know if there's a huge bear problem over there. The photographer guy proves himself to be absolutely fucking useless both at helping Janet and protecting them from a single zombie. Like he decides to take a pitchfork and he just bops it on the head with it and then pretty much just hands it over to the zombie. Like watching the scene is so frustrating because the way the guy in the zombie fight is so incredibly slow. It feels like it feels like watching yourself be in a dream when you're trying to punch or run but you just keep going slower and slower and getting more and more angry while that happens like imagine that but a woman is also moaning loudly and there's this grating violin over it like Janet just, she moans the rest of the movie and it's it's supposed to be in pain but it sounds it sounds like something else So Mustache and Leslie hear the moans of Janet and smartly decipher that for once it isn't sex that they're hearing and they go and save the two. And none of the people in this movie are especially great at fighting, but Janet and photographer guy would have definitely been like the sizzler and golden corral to George's country kitchen buffet if it wasn't for those two. Like Leslie runs up and fucking smashes a zombie's head in with a rock, which is why I think I remember her name because she's, like, the first person to actually, like, do something early on. So, Mustache Guy follows suit, they get Janet out of the trap, and then everyone runs back to the villa. Meanwhile, Evelyn sets two zombies on fire somewhere. I have no idea where they're supposed to be. And that's kind of typical of this movie, though. The setting of each scene is always super, super loose. Uh, Apparently, one of the men who um, was in the zombie costume actually began burning in his suit when he was caught, when he was, uh, set on fire, and Bianchi insisted on, uh, rolling film, saying, like, oh, this is the most authentic shot, this looks great, it's like, well, yeah, dude, it's because someone is literally suffering right now, like, what the fuck, like, they even had trouble putting out the suit, and the actor was seriously injured, like, all that for, for what, you know, <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, it shows the other four running, and, uh, they go to where their cars are parked, but, Oh no, there's three zombies slowly walking around. How could they ever push past them and run and get in? They seem to think it's impossible, though, and they never even try to get back to the cars or even fucking mention the cars again in the movie. So they're in the house, and they start boarding up the windows with literal sticks as night falls. But zombies don't work by shark rules. They don't sleep. (laughs) Thank you for that stupid joke, Ramon Bravo, your gift keeps on giving. So this is where Burial Ground starts to divert a little bit from what was pretty typical at the time of a zombie movie. These zombies actually are fairly intelligent and resourceful as far as using tools go. I mentioned Day of the Dead, which had like a somewhat similar theme in it to a degree, and that film came out several years after this one. I mean, it came out in 85 in the states, but you know what I mean. So the maid that works there does the rounds around the house after serving drinks. I love this. Even during a zombie invasion, she still puts her job first. But she slowly looks out an open window to grab the shutter from the outside to close it. And then this zombie on the ground floor with, like, super speed precision and was, like, probably a champion, like, pub dart thrower... Somehow throws a stake and it pierces her hand to the shutter, and so a group of zombies then reach up with a scythe to like very slowly decapitate her. So not only can these zombies use tools, they can work in teams, and they appear to have like godlike throwing abilities. Whatever. Mustache soon comes upon the maid's corpse while he's looking for her, presumably because he wants a drink refill. And so he sees the zombies below and his reaction is so perfectly matched for a soap opera that it isn't even funny. Like, he behaves more like he just saw his wife cheating on him through a window than discovering a decapitated body with, you know, the living dead swarming around below him. He makes the unique decision at this point to throw her corpse to the zombies. I mean, I guess that's the best thing to do. A lot of undead flicks will have, like, characters leave the corpses of their friends laying around, which eventually come back to betray them at some point. But her head was already gone, so would she still come back? They've established that you can only kill them by destroying the brain, but, oh well, I guess we'll never know because they just wrench her hand free and then eat her. And going back to what I said a moment ago, the zombies form a single file line at this point in and out of a barn to collect various tools to break into the house. I mean, it's great because even in death, these dudes know how to form an orderly queue, unlike some fucking people that I have to deal with on a normal basis. Yeah. And so the zombies begin trying to chop their way through the front door of the villa while Mustache tries picking off a few of them from above with a shotgun. The effect is what you'd expect. But the cutting is done in such a way that it lingers just a little too long on the dummy head before it explodes. And it's just the same head too, shot simultaneously from different angles. So you see the zombies rambling about, then suddenly there's an unmoving head on a black backdrop, hold, then kablooey. In a movie full of off-putting decisions, it's just another bullet point. Oh god, I didn't even mean to make that pun. (laughs) So, the zombies walk away, and the characters just decide that the zombies must be done for the day. Like, they literally just say, Well, maybe they'll leave us alone for the night as if they're working a fucking union job, and they just reach their required hours of terror for the day. Like, see you tomorrow. No, <laughs> absolutely not. They just try to find a different way into the house. And so, Leslie's taking care of Janet's bear trap wound. God, I still can't fucking believe that. And then um, goes to find bandages alone where a zombie rage punches through a random window and pulls her by her hair. It it yanks a fistful out and it puts her face through the glass and her face morphs into a half-melted wax dummy for this part complete with what looks like fingerprints all over it. I mean, I do love how low-budget DIY effects look in this film. It's like, you know when you watch something that has, like, a Stan Winston team, you know, anything like that, and you think, like, wow, someone made this? But in this movie, it's like, aw, someone made this. Went on to be a murderer. (laughs) But yeah, other than, like, some pain and a few cuts, Leslie would not be killed by this at all. And then the zombies just leaves, and that's it. Then we have a couple excruciatingly long scenes of zombies chopping a door down with Janet hobbling about and moaning. And no one is doing anything useful. We don't know where anyone is, yada, yada, yada. Zombies are in the house tonight, ladies and gentlemen, they are here. And here is where the frustration really, really kicks in and you are ready for these characters to go. Like, Janet has this long poker and instead of impaling them or beating them in the head she just keeps moaning and very lightly stabbing no she's she's poking them with the poker and ever so gently they take a step she nudges them they bleed gray paint they go back a step they take a step forward she pokes them moan 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 I have officially had enough of this woman the remaining characters rush in and save her while Michael is useless and crying for his mama which seems to whip her up into a frenzy and I kid you not, this, this is for real, she, she cuts the hand off of a zombie that's coming through a window and that fucking stinger that happens uh, when they say no- nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, like that plays. I'm not even joking, so Mama decapitates a zombie at one point, and we get easily the most unsettling shot of the whole movie, which is Michael screaming. If you are curious about what that looks like, it's his, it's actually his IMDB actor photo. It's really, really creepy, it looks like something from a David Lynch movie. He actually looks like the, um, one character in, oh, what was it, Uh, Lost Highway, like the the little dude in that. I can you know what? I can I can't even really remember what happens in that movie. Sorry. <laughs> so, getting back to burial ground, they've killed a handful of zombies at this point. Janet saved. Yay. And now it's time for Michael to make his move. The conditions are perfect. Just perfect. Now is his moment. I guess this is a spoiler. I don't think it's really a spoiler, but here we go. So, under the pretense of him being very afraid and therefore wanting to stay close to his mom, he, um, you know, she says, I hope you can forgive me. And he's like, oh, of course. And he starts kissing her as is typical in Europe, you know, one on each cheek, and then he kisses her on the mouth. And they're both kind of moaning a little bit. And she keeps kissing back like half-heartedly like a mom would do, and like uh, stroking his hair. And then he just straight up, Dips his hand into her blouse And starts rounding second base And she just kind of pulls his hand away Like it's nothing He isn't phased at all And he just starts growing right up her sh- up, Right up her fucking skirt uh, To, you know, do ooh. You know what he's trying to do But fortunately she smacks his hand away And then smacks the piss out of him He scuttles away crying Going, what's wrong? I'm your son I'm um, Exactly that, you creepy little fucking gherkin, Jesus. Peter Bark being an adult eight-year-old is the main draw of this movie, like I said before, and the sudden blatant incest shift is one of the reasons why this movie gets remembered by people. It's just so skin-crawly, and it's way worse than any of the zombie crap. Like, you you come on the pretense of zombies, but you stay for the incest. Come for the zombies, stay for the incest, like I feel like that should be the tagline. Michael runs into Leslie, who is inexplicably a zombie. There are no rules here. it's a free-for-all hair removal kills you, cats sleeping with dogs, sons groping, their moms pandemonium, so Leslie lumbers forward while Peter Burke just kind of stares, looking sad and not really doing anything, asking like are you okay? Do you want me to call the the others? And then more zombies are still walking, and uh, mama goes looking for Michael, and then finds Leslie treating his severed arm like a corn cob, and then, uh, I guess, spoiler, I don't know, um, Evelyn just murders the ever-loving shit out of Leslie by bashing her head in, like, it's, it's really, really visceral, like, She is the most brutal of all of them. It's incredible. Um, After she kills her, we see that Leslie inexplicably has her throat slit. I guess that's what initially killed her, but I mean, how did she turn into a zombie? She wasn't bitten or anything. I don't fucking know how this movie works. So the zombies make a makeshift battering ram and they get into the house and honestly, Why is the zombie stuff the most boring part of the movie? I mean, how they're portrayed, how they're reacted to, it's all very, very sleepy. Like, that's the best way I can describe it as sleepy. The zombies just start taking a walking tour of the villa's palatial interiors. The professor makes an appearance again, if you were wanting to see him one more time. uh, The characters just kind of avoid the zombies and make it outside. So the photographer guy says, like, oh, maybe they want something in the house, not us. I mean, I just forget the fact that they singularly seem to just want to kill everyone and have killed several people. I mean, why not? Maybe, shit, I don't know. Maybe they just want that slab that the professor took. I mean, do you guys remember that one episode of Courage the Cowardly Dog? Return the slab. So it's now dawn and... They all just kinda hoof it slash drag Janet uh, to the best place to make contact with the outside world, a monastery. (laughs) Mustache finds the monks who are all zombies. I mean, and this is more like, what are the rules here? I mean, did the professor just unleash this hellscape across the whole country? Like, are these demons rules? Or did the zombies from that one crypt mosey their way over there yesterday too and turn all the monks? I mean, what the hell is going on? You know, I mean, but, well, goodbye mustache. For a little while anyway, we'll see him again. So now it's just Janet, photographer, and Evelyn, or mama, whatever you want to call her. They leave and go down to this weird little workshop type place. I mean, I know I sound really unsure when I say that, but they actually don't even know what to make of it either, but they hang out there, blocking one of the exits, and then when they get up to the other exit to block that, guess what comes spewing out, trapping them in? Oh, uh, it's zombies. Zombies is the answer. Oh, including Michael, Michael's back! Uh, so, Evelyn's basically been in a catatonic state since, uh, finding him and killing Leslie, and so she just kind of rushes over, over to him, and here we have the fucking coup de gras, the best part of the movie. Oh boy, we've been waiting for so long. So, Mama starts encouraging Michael to breastfeed after he starts groping her again, and, ah, oh, he gnaws her fucking titty off with his teeth like it's stale turkey jerky like it's the incest crescendo the piece de resistance the ultimate in titty twister technology zombie oedipus boy man get yours today oh it's so fucking good i can't get over it so more zombies file in to both exits at this point moving aside the barricade that the character's made with like just a flick of the wrist, some other characters make a reappearance, and the zombies discover the power tools that are there. So unless the characters, you know, really fight back hard, that's gonna be the end for them. Though do they fight back hard? Well, what the fuck do you expect at this point? The film ends with a bunch of hands hovering over Janet's face with the misspelled prophecy of the black spider. No clue what the black spider is, but then there's a quote, and it says also with misspellings, The earth shall tremble, graves shall open, They shall come among the living as messengers of death, And there shall be the Nigs of terror. The end. Now, wasn't that a nice happy ending? Oh, everyone got together at the end. I love a good reunion, don't you? Well, surprisingly... Burial Ground made a little over half a million dollars when it was released in the U.S. in 1985. It gained a bit of a cult status with the VHS released by Best Video. And it has since been touched up and re-released on Blu-ray by the good folks at Severin. It looks really, really good. And if you don't have a local video store, it is available for rent on Amazon. And I think it's available rent on uh, YouTube as well. Someone's actually uploaded it on YouTube in its entirety, so if you don't feel like paying, which I understand, (laughs) I first saw this movie in high school at, like, somewhere between midnight and three o'clock when I was really, really sick, and I feel like watching it when you're sick is kind of perfect. It's a slow movie in parts that doesn't actively demand your attention, but it's just... Such an odd entry into the zombie subgenre. I remember immediately loving it because there isn't any like a long preamble before you get to the zombies. There's no extensive character development in the middle that takes you away from the zombie action. It is just cut and shut, sign and recline. You get what you get. Which sometimes that's kind of what you need. Like, you can make fun of it all you want for not having much of a plot or not having much character development, but I mean, do you really want it any other way? I mean, this movie would not be nearly as fun if they worked hard on motivation, so to speak. It's just, boy wants to fuck mom. Zombies want kill. People do sex on each other. Stab, 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 chop, and that's it. Done. Go home. You know, that's pretty, that's fine for me, I think. It's, I think it's quite enjoyable. So, I would say check this movie out if you like movies like Dr. Butcher, M.D. I mean, I don't think anyone really likes Dr. Butcher, M.D., but it's, like, a similar vein. Uh, It'd probably be a good companion piece with, like, City of the Living Dead. Um, Personally, I would say maybe Street Trash or Mausoleum. I think it'd be good with those. They just seem like good company, if that's what you want to call good company. Yeah. (laughs) So, that's all for Burial Ground. Um... (laughs) It's it's quite a movie. Um, I don't really have anything else to say about it. Check it out if you want to. If you don't, I understand, but you're going to miss out on some great titty-chompin' action. Join me on my next episode, where I'll be discussing the criminally underrated and star-studded film, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. I'm really looking forward to doing that one, and I hope to see you then. Take a care. Thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at ghoulsonlypress. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul.